I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no end in sight. This is Encounter 61, two years and one week. Don't worry, this is going to be a relatively short one. After the last episode, I think we all need a shorter episode, a a sort of palate cleanser, if you will. So, two years, 60 regular episodes, a dozen or so bonus episodes, and what have we got to show for it? Well, 60 regular episodes and a dozen or so bonus episodes. So, there it is. Also, close to 2,000 regular listeners, a few hundred more who dip in here and there, um, some regular commenters, emailers, and social media correspondents. Uh, You all contributed your show ideas and production suggestions, and in some cases, your money. And I'm incredibly grateful for all of it. So, in asking around online about what we should do for this second anniversary episode, we had some great suggestions of topics, uh, a lot of which I'll be getting to down the road, and some of which are incorporated into this episode. One of which is um, from Rod on Facebook, and he suggested an alternate dimension show. Now, this probably isn't what he meant, but I conceived an entire Bizarro World episode of The UFO Life, which would be nothing but hot takes about sightings by military pilots, secret government programs that get declassified, wacky conspiracy theories, and, of course, mysterious alloys. The crucial point being, of course, that at some time over the last two years, each of these so-called current topics gets covered on the show in some sort of historical flying saucer story. Ultimately, as I began to write it, it became clear that I would not be able to sustain this gag. Uh, I did, however, do one segment. Hey, this is The UFO Life. The UFO Life is a podcast in which we explore cool stuff that's happening to humanity as we pass into a new age of disclosure and enlightenment. No snark, and debunkers aren't welcome. Keep an open mind, because all of this stuff might be true. And if we say it isn't, we might make some powerful enemies. And we gotta keep that sweet, sweet convention appearance cash rolling in. This is episode 61, protected by the love of the sphere beings. Hey guys, great to be here and to talk about some of the wild stuff going on in the skies and on the ground. One topic that's been on my mind a lot lately and has begun to impress are these blue avians. I don't know what the deal is, but it sounds cool. And there's an alliance, a sphere being alliance, right? Who are they? According to their website, this is who they are. They are a 6th to ninth density group of beings that have been referred to as the Sphere Alliance. These new Sphere beings have not only created an energetic blockade around Earth, but have also done so around our entire solar system. They are a non-violent group of beings who have brought assistance mainly in the form of a message. Whoa, I mean... This is unprecedented. Beings with a different density? Spaceships forming a shield of protection around Earth? No one is talking about this stuff. And certainly there was nothing like this going on in like the the 40s and the 50s. Not that I know what was going on back in the 40s and 50s. None of that stuff matters because it was all just boring people and books and stuff. 
who reads books. We got podcasts and YouTube. Just a little, uh, just a little rant here. I'm so tired of these gatekeepers assuming that since I don't care about what happened before the New York Times ran that story in 2017, and that I haven't actually investigated anything, that I'm not a UFO investigator, and that my opinions aren't as important as those old people who write books and blogs and drone on and on and on about evidence and logic and critical thinking. Boring. So anyway, what's the message of our new protectors? What are they trying to tell us, man? Focus on increasing your service to others and being more loving to yourself and everyone in order to raise your vibrational and consciousness level. Learn to forgive yourself and others, thus releasing karma. This will change the vibration on the planet, raise the shared consciousness of humanity, and change humankind one person at a time, even if that one person is yourself. They tell us to treat your body as a temple and change over to a higher vibrational diet to aid in the process. That that really speaks to me, man. Especially the higher vibrational diet. I've been feeling the need to do that myself. Gotta cut, like, carbs and stuff. So much truth in the words of these wise beings. And I mean, there's been a lot of talk about these blue avian guys on YouTube and Facebook, so I think there's probably something to it. Really, what you need to remember is, the more that people talk about it, the more true it probably is. And uh, and that, that's just one of the lessons we can learn from the Blue Avians. So it was fun to do that bit, but it was really unsustainable. The sort of higher-pitched, excited voice is particularly unsustainable. And um, editing out all the times when I started laughing was time-consuming enough on, on this small selection that to do it sort of for 20 minutes would be would be sort of unsustainable from a production standpoint. Plus, satire is really difficult, as you could tell. It's it's far too easy just to hit the nail on the head rather than being clever and oblique. And uh, and I, I missed clever and oblique there. I think I was I was just verging on just venting or something. So there's some thank yous that I need to do. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list, uh, so if you're not on it, um, I may have forgotten you, or it's not an exhaustive list, um, but remember that I love you anyway. So, on the actual production side, our occasional guest voices, Roberta Evangeline Straith, Nelson Sanat, and Sasha Gimlinson have done a great job on sometimes very tight deadlines, sometimes having to record things that make absolutely no sense and uh, are unpronounceable in our human language. Our logo, uh, logos, have been designed by Jordan Bonaparte of the Nighttime Podcast, and I, I, I think they're great. The mysterious Bill, uh, not a Venusian, or is he, uh, has provided occasional but necessary technical assistance. For the last couple episodes, our uh, new associate producer in charge of random bits of post-production advice has been Simpson J. Hanover III, Yes, that's a pseudonym, but it's actually an old family pseudonym used by generations of his ancestors, which is, which is very, uh, very cool. Behind the scenes, information and insight has always been provided by the secretive collective known as IFH. I'm also very appreciative of other podcasts that have had me on as a guest since I've started the show. You can find links to all those appearances at saucerlife.com. In no particular order, Radio Mysterioso with uh, Greg Bishop, Where Did the Road Go?, Conspiranormal, Project Archivist, Somewhere in the Skies, The Graylian Report, Almost Educational, Some Other Sphere, 
been all of America, and most recently, uh, the NPR program, It's Been a Minute, with Sam Sanders, where I talked about um, why people should not storm Area 51 and the importance of Area 51 to the UFO mythos and things like that. I'd have them all on my show in return, but we don't do guests here. Um, we, we just don't um, right now. We may in the future. I've got a weird idea, but at the moment, we're a no-guest operation. So, some trivia. Our three most downloaded episodes, uh, unsurprisingly, have been Encounters 702, 704, and 706, which were all concerned with the happenings surrounding the Mothman episode in the Ohio Valley back in the late 60s. 704, our Indrid Cold episode, is the most downloaded one of the first two years of the show, which led me to think that I should provide a little update on the whole Indrid Cold story, because there is one. I mentioned it slightly in the Indrid Cold episode, uh, but just I just very briefly, and I'd like to expand on this a bit. In 2017, Tanya, Woody Derenberger's daughter, wrote a book called Beyond Lanulos, Our 50 Years with Indrid Cold, and the description at Amazon is as follows. In Beyond Lanulos, Tanya Derenberger Bowman, daughter of Woody Derenberger, continues the story begun by her father 50 years ago, when he famously encountered the spaceman, Indrid Cold, on Interstate 77 outside of Mineral Wells, West Virginia. According to Derenberger, Indrid Cold is still alive today. Well, maybe not. In September 2018, Tanya posted this on the Beyond Lanulos Facebook page. This just in. I just received two visitors carrying some devastating news. Indrid Cold, age 92, Demo Hassan, and Carl Ardo died today. When I have more info, I will pass it along. A few weeks later, she posted that an obituary would be coming soon, but none ever arrived. And a month or so after that, she announced a new book, Indrid Cold, Man or Myth. On that book's Facebook page, she described it in this way. You probably know the name Indrid Cold from the Mothman Prophecies movie by John Keel. But without knowing Indrid Cold the man, he seems just like a voice on a movie. Just like in Beyond Lanulos, I'm going to give you a sneak peek into Indrid Cold the man, and you can make your own decision whether you think he was a real man or a myth right now at least for several days. I don't have a laptop to use, but I'm going to probably start Tuesday, go to an area office supply store that has computers to use to write this book because I really want this book out by the beginning of December for Christmas. So happy reading, and I'll post more later or tomorrow. She also posted this brief excerpt slash sneak peek, and since it was posted on a public page, I thought I would share it with you. To a four-year-old Tanya, this strange man with a wide, crooked grin was as tall as her father and very friendly. Tanya had her dad say the night before something about he seemed to read his mind. However, he spoke in perfect English to her. She couldn't really understand all of the commotion, but she loved the attention from all the people in the yard. She kept hearing people say they wanted to see the alien, but she didn't know what that was, and they didn't know that Indrid Cold was amongst them. She was standing with her father in the yard, and the man with the crooked grin was standing not far away. A man with a shotgun came up to her father, and for a moment she was afraid this man was going to shoot her dad. He asked about the man that he met on the highway and how he could meet him too. Her father said all in good time. He will show himself to everybody. He told this strange gentleman that the world was not ready to realize there are other life forms besides ours. 
Sadly, Tanya seems to have had a series of medical issues which have prevented her from working on the book, which is sad because I am planning on buying it as soon as it's available, just like I did Beyond Lanulos, because I love the sincerity with which she writes these things. It would be easy to be snarky about it, but hey, no snark, I said, except when it's deserved. And in my opinion, it's not deserved in this, in this case. Perhaps, fittingly, uh, Beyond Lanulos is absolutely in the tradition of contacty writing in its style and sort of naive charm. Um, the grammar isn't perfect. It's, it's confusing. It is largely unbelievable in a sense that it is difficult to believe. But it feels like a contacty book. It, it really does, and it certainly feels more like contacty material than anything uh, that's come out of the Ashtar camp ever since poor old Tuella left us and joined the fleet in orbit. Now, all of this sort of ties into something else. In the episode about Indrid Cold, I mentioned that I was going to try and find out some details about why so much material was missing from the new edition of Visitors from Lanulos, and um, I'm now ready to reveal the results of that investigation. Wow. That sounds way more impressive than it will be, as you'll see. Basically, I, I sent a message to, to Tanya Derenberger Bowman and asked basically, you know, why are these chapters missing and, and why is this stuff different? And she wasn't sure. She mentioned something about the publisher working from her father's original notes before any other editors had gotten a hold of them and that that might account for the differences. To be honest, she seemed to have no idea that there were any discrepancies at all. She seemed very surprised by that. She did say she'd talk to the publisher and try to find out, but I haven't heard from her. You know, Doubtless, the medical issues she's discussed on Facebook should be taking priority, hopefully. However, uh, my recommendation to avoid the new edition of Visitors from Lanulos does stand. So... Um, finishing up, this isn't much of a throwback, but believe it or not, uh, even as long as our last episode was, the uh, Orfeo Angelucci episode, and thanks for the great feedback on that one. I was, I was gratified that people seemed to enjoy it, uh, considering how difficult it was to put together. There was some material that was uh, recorded but not used for, for reasons of time, and if you can imagine this, um, I, I think there was some stuff in there that I cut that I actually looked at it and said, no, this... This is too far outside the relevance of what we're doing. There weren't enough electric mandala sounds I could dump in there uh, to indicate enough rabbit holes to make this one work. So um, we're going to hear that. Uh, remember the guy who wrote to the FBI about Bill the Venusian in the exotic alloy and, and being you know irritated that um, that you know they would report some Mystic Magazine reported something that might not be true. He had a real bee in his bonnet about Ray Palmer being a communist. Also, Jim Mosley makes an appearance, which is always fun. Now, the original letter writer wasn't satisfied with Palmer's explanation in a subsequent issue and wrote back to Mr. Hoover. September 29th, 1954. Dear Mr. Hoover, the enclosed carbon of a letter from me to Mr. Ray Palmer, editor and publisher of Mystic Magazine, is self-explanatory. I was about to mail the original to Mr. Palmer when it occurred to me that it might be better to withhold the same until I learned from you whether I would be spoiling anything by thus putting him on notice or whether it is advisable to go ahead. Therefore, 
Will you kindly let me know as early as it is feasible whether I should withhold this letter from him indefinitely, or whether, as far as the FBI and the ends of pro-Americanism are concerned, I should mail it to him? It happens that I am a member of AWARE, a fairly new organization begun in New York City for combating communism in the entertainment fields. I had thought to acquaint it with the situation in regard to Mr. Palmer, but shall also refrain from doing this until I hear from you. Mystic was shown to me by some friends. Published monthly, the August 1954 edition referred to is the 5th. However, Mr. Palmer, as revealed by paragraph 2 of the editorial discussed, is also publisher of Fate, a much older monthly periodical, now in its 7th year, 9th issue. Both are issued from 806 Dempster Street, Evanston, Illinois. Fate by Clark Publishing Company. This guy sounds fun at parties, doesn't he? The letter he intended to send to Palmer was very long, but I did enjoy this portion of it. The reason for your evil propaganda is plain. You try to cover your purpose with the first part of the sentence, quote, Naturally, we Americans would like to see communism banished forever from our daily fare, end quote. But you give yourself away with the remainder, quote, Because in its present state, it is a terror to us, end quote. This is the claim of many Reds and their friends, that communism is okay. Only Stalin distorted it. But the fact is that the seeds of all the aggressions, brutalities, including unheard of tortures, and the many errors in its politico-economic system were either explicit or implicit in Marx and Engels themselves. The very expression dictatorship of the proletariat is a typical semantic delusion with which to seduce and cheat people since this expression is without any validity whatsoever. A dictatorship is always absolute rule by a very few or one person at the top. Characteristically with you people, you devote your editorial firstly to sympathy for the poor, benighted American dupes who do not know what's what because they are fed solely propaganda, and then, having greased this demoralizing slide, you club them with the most brazen misrepresentation, not to say treasonable to humanity, all good, and the U.S., as the truth. It is particularly base for you to seek to subvert people through their quest for truth concerning the eternal spiritual life. Again, if, as you imply, you, unlike the beclouded ignoramuses by whom you are surrounded here in the U.S., have any understanding of what you are saying, you must also know that Marx not only set out to destroy God and all religion, but incidentally, the soul as well. In an entirely material concept of mankind and life, whether you would be permitted its publication or not, there would be no place for such a magazine as Mystic. However, there's nothing mystic about what you're up to. It needs to be exposed. And in response, Hoover had more or less had enough of this. Your letter of September 29, 1954, with enclosure, has been received, and I appreciate the interest which prompted you to write. In connection with the copy of the letter you enclosed, I would like to point out that it is not possible for me to advise you whether or not to send the letter in question to the editor of the magazine you mentioned. You may be assured that your communication will be made a matter of record in our files. If you believe you have any additional information of interest to the FBI, please feel free to contact the representatives of our office located at 290 Broadway, New York 7, New York. Sincerely yours, John Edgar Hoover, Director. Now, interestingly, at least to me, at the end of the letter that Hoover wrote, 
there are some notations from the FBI indicating that some relatives of people involved in the Clark Publishing Company had been involved in communist political circles in the early 1930s. And I find that sort of thing more than a little chilling. It's certainly more ominous, I think, than stories of men in black. Jim Mosley was also involved in reporting the story of the metal-gouging Venusian. Mosley's account comes in the September 1954 issue of Gray Barker's Saucerian magazine. One saucer story on the coast that particularly interested me was what I call the Two Men from Venus story. Though there are many versions of this tale going around the country, a composite account would run something like this. In about April of 1953, two fairly ordinary-looking men walked into a California newspaperman's office and announced they were from Venus. Being a rather cynical fellow, the reporter asked if they could prove this statement. One did, by making a deep gouge in the desk with his thumbnail. The newsman was duly impressed. The Venusians asked if they could get a job with the paper and were told to come back the next day to find out. The following day, one of the two returned. "'Where's your friend today?' asked the reporter, to which the Venusian replied that since there was only one job available, only one of them had come back. Surely enough, there was only one job open. But how had he known? The mystery grew deeper. To further prove his powers, the Venusian put a half-inch deep gouge in a steel bar, which subsequent analysis showed would take 1,700 pounds of pressure to duplicate. The skeptical reporter was thoroughly convinced by now, and gave the spaceman a job at the local missing persons bureau where, during the next couple of weeks, Venusio, as he was nicknamed, did a superhuman job of bringing in missing persons. For example, one time a man was arrested and accused of driving in a stolen car. The unfortunate fellow claimed he had only borrowed the car, but all he could remember was that the owner was a man named Joe. Within half an hour, Venusio brought Joe in, and the accused man was released. With such feats as this, the Venusians soon proved themselves to be the best investigator the Bureau had ever had. But after two or three weeks, something went wrong. Some say the Venusian feared publicity. Others say he was asked too many troublesome questions by his co-workers. In any case, he suddenly quit one day and has never been seen since. The actual name the Venusian used during his stay on Earth was Wheeler, though he was known by his nickname. As far as I could find out, however, there's no record of a man named Wheeler ever having worked at that particular office. In addition, I've been told that the reporter had admitted privately to friends that the incident was a hoax. However, far be it from me to cast doubts on such a fascinating story. I understand the reporter intends to write up the incident for a national magazine, and all I can do is wish him success in this venture. I don't know where I actually recall it from, but I do recall the version of the story where the man left a gouge in the desk, and then that portion of the desk was sent for testing. Another example of how these stories can get recycled and and reused. It might be from Mosley's book uh, that was published in the 70s about Hangar 18 that included some of his journeys out west back in the 50s. It might have been in there that I'm remembering it from, but I know I've heard it somewhere. So as you can see, some interesting stuff, but getting a little far from the uh, the Angelucci material, even with the tangential connections to that, uh, to that story about Bill the Venusian, or Venusio, as he was called. Um... And I, I really missed, I think I mentioned, I can't remember if I mentioned it in the last episode. I, pr- I probably cut that too. I really like to think that Hoover 
really was sitting there reading every single letter people addressed to J. Edgar Hoover. And I think we should go back to a time where if you suspected anything was amiss in any way about anything, you directly contacted the head of the FBI. And you would, of course, as a taxpayer, expect a prompt response. Actually, I am almost certain there are people who who are, you know, sending letters to who's the Christopher Ray? Is that the guy? Christopher Ray, head of the FBI, and uh, and and sort of bugging him about these things. So, 2 years. I think we're going to keep going um because there's plenty more saucer stories out there, although this does increase the likelihood that I'm going to eventually have to cover the Betty and Barney Hill story, but Not yet. Stay tuned next time for Encounter 62, all the weekly world news that's fit to print, and it actually is more interesting than aliens giving Bill Clinton a ride in their spaceship or endorsing um, presidential candidates. We are going to learn from 1992 which five U.S. senators were actually aliens, which is going to be great. We're also going to, um, because I can't resist, look at some of my favorite regular weekly world news features, especially Dear Dottie's advice column. So stay tuned. As always, you can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to The Saucer Life wherever you find podcasts. The Saucer Life Encounter 61 featured Nelson Sinat. Our associate producer is S.J. Hanover III, and the show is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies have been watching you for a lot longer than two years. <laughs>